The world is full of toxins, industrial chemicals developed over the last 75 years that can wreak havoc on our bodies, causing irreparable harm. But they have other attributes that make them valuable, and they are integral to products that make money. So despite the danger they pose to our health and safety, they remain on the market with few or no restrictions. This is how we deal with toxic chemicals in this country. This is a system that puts more value on money than it does on health. And this is Green Street. Hello again, and welcome back to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of authors, scientists, medical professionals, engineers, activists, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is really going on in the environment all around you and how you can keep your family safe and healthy in this increasingly toxic world. If there was a chemical spill somewhere near where people live, you can imagine that it would be cordoned off with yellow police tape and guys in hazmat suits would arrive to clean up the mess. But suppose I told you that instead, communities would pay more than a million dollars to have toxic material spread all over their parks and playgrounds. You would assume I was nuts, but that's what's happening in cities and towns across America. Today on Green Street, we'll talk with a young scientist who is looking carefully at the public health implications of artificial turf fields. So if you know a young athlete who is spending a lot of time on one of these fields, you may want to listen carefully to what's coming up on the show today. And then later on, we'll talk with Will Lopez, who is running for a seat in the New York State Assembly. We'll talk about big environmental issues, how they affect communities of color, and what cities and states can do to help change some of our priorities and create a healthy, sustainable world for everyone. That's all coming up here on Green Street, right after Patty and the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Okay, so first article from The Hill, written by Sharon Udison. And it is entitled, House Oversight Committee Demands the FDA Address Endocrine Disrupting Phthalates. The Food and Drug Administration must take immediate action to address a class of endocrine disrupting compounds called phthalates that continue to plague American food packaging, the House Oversight and Reform Committee demanded in a letter on Monday. Quote, FDA is tasked with ensuring the safety of our nation's food supply, but over multiple administrations, the agency has fallen short in protecting vulnerable Americans from the pernicious effect of foods contaminated with phthalates, wrote Representative Raja Krishnamurthy, the chairman of the Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy. Quote, FDA must not allow these dangerous chemicals to continue to hurt American families. FDA must act without further delay, end quote. Phthalates, chemicals that can interfere with hormone function, are associated with birth defects, infertility, learning disabilities, and neurological disorders. Their presence is still common, however, in food packaging and processing materials. Children exposed to phthalates in utero can also suffer from adverse health impacts, including cognitive developmental issues. Acknowledging that some steps have been taken on a congressional level to address phthalate use in common household goods, such as a 2009 ban on phthalate concentrations of more than 0.1% in children's toys, much more progress must be made. FDA regulations still permit the use of 28 different phthalates in food processing and packaging materials. Krishnamurthy's letter also stressed that harms from phthalate exposure disproportionately impacted communities of color. 
Pregnant black women have greater exposure than pregnant white women, leading to poorer birth outcomes and creating health disparities that cascade from one generation to the next. The letter goes on to request responses to a series of questions to assist the subcommittee with its review of the issue. The questions ask when the FDA plans to issue a decision on the 2016 petition, what steps the FDA is taking to evaluate health effects of phthalates in food packaging and processing materials, how the FDA is working toward banning phthalates from these materials, and what data the FDA has that demonstrates that the 28 phthalate and what data the FDA has that demonstrates that the 28 phthalates used in these materials are safe. The FDA has received the letter and will respond directly to Congressman Krishnamurthy, said an FDA spokesperson. Yeah, six years to answer a petition or, a, a, you know, really, I mean, how long should we be keeping these chemicals on the market while we. And that's you know, just one group or one I class know, of chemicals. I know. Phthalates is just one, but it is really, really ubiquitous in the food industry. They package everything in plastic, and that plastic contains phthalates. And a six-year-old has grown up his entire or his or her entire life while the FDA is sitting on whether or not to make a decision about that's it. That's right. And that six-year-old has been exposed to phthalates since, literally since birth, and even probably prior to birth. In utero exposures are very common with the phthalates. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So... Uh, another interesting article, and it was written by Gabrielle Filippelli, and it was printed in The Conversation, and it's titled, How Poisonous Mercury Gets from Coal-Fired Power Plants into the Fish That You Eat. People fishing along the banks of the White River as it winds through Indianapolis sometimes pass by ominous signs warning about eating the fish that they might catch. One of the risks they have faced is mercury poisoning. Mercury is a neurotoxic metal that can cause irreparable harm to human health, especially the brain development of young children. It is tied to lower IQ and results in decreased earning potential as well as higher health costs. Lost productivity from mercury alone was calculated in 2005 to reach almost $9 billion per year. One way mercury gets into river fish is with the gases that rise up the smokestacks of coal-burning power plants. The Environmental Protection Agency has had a rule since 2012 limiting mercury emissions from coal-fired power plants. But the Trump administration stopped enforcing it, arguing that the cost to industry outweighed the health benefit. Now the Biden administration is moving to reassert it. The risks from eating a fish from a river downwind from a coal-burning power plant depends on both the type of fish caught and the age and condition of the person consuming it. Mercury is a bioaccumulative toxin, meaning that it increasingly concentrates in the flesh of organisms as it makes its way up the food chain. The mercury emitted from coal-burning power plants falls onto soils and washes into waterways. There, the moderately benign mercury is transformed by bacteria into a toxic organic form called methylmercury. Each bacterium might contain only one unit of toxic methylmercury, but a worm chewing through sediment and eating 1,000 of those bacteria now contains 1,000 doses of mercury. The catfish that eats the worm then gets more doses and so on up the food chain to humans. 
In this way, top-level predator fishes such as smallmouth bass and walleye, lake trout, and northern pike typically contain the highest amounts of mercury in aquatic ecosystems. On average, one of these fish contains enough to make eating only one of them per month dangerous for the developing fetuses of pregnant women and for children. The EPA announced the Mercury and Air Toxic Standards Rule in 2011 to deal with the exact health risk Indianapolis was facing. The rule stipulated that mercury sources had to be sharply reduced. For coal-fired power plants, this meant either installing costly mercury-capturing filters in the smokestacks or converting to another energy source. Many converted to natural gas, which reduces the mercury risk but still contributes to health problems and global warming. The mercury and air toxic standards rule helped tilt the national energy playing field away from coal until the Trump administration attempted to weaken the rule in 2020 to try to bolster the declining U.S. coal industry. So just to be clear, the brains of young children are less valuable than the profits of the coal industry, right? Well, according to a former administrator and a former president. I have nothing to say about that. Okay. But I have something to say about the Super Bowl, and this is my last article. Okay. Okay. Super Bowl 56 last weekend significantly changed after Rams wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. was lost for the game due to a knee injury after his leg was caught on the SoFi Stadium artificial turf. Beckham, who had two catches for 52 yards and a touchdown on three targets, was dominating the league championship game before the injury. Not only was Beckham unable to play for the rest of the Super Bowl, but he has to worry about his future after suffering what is expected to be another torn ACL to the same knee he injured last season while with the Cleveland Browns. Beckham's injury caused NFL players, current and former, to call for the elimination of field turf at the stadiums in which they play, including the $5 billion SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. The players took to social media after the game to express their concerns. Running back Nick Chubb wrote, 90% of NFL players prefer real grass, including me. In 2020, I sprained my MCL on artificial turf. George Kittle, tight end for the San Francisco 49ers, said, I don't like artificial turf. I love grass. It's better for my body, our performance, and the planet. Defensive end Nick Bosa agreed, quote, every player is one play away from altering their career forever when playing on artificial turf. I experienced the bad side of this and it could have been avoided, end quote. Connor Barwin, special assistant for the Philadelphia Eagles, chimed in, the NFL needs to ban artificial turf in all stadiums. I hope OBJ is okay, referring to Odell Beckham Jr., There's a lot of support for natural grass fields. Half of the league's teams play on artificial turf, which is why many players are supporting a change.org petition to get rid of turf. The petition cites some statistics backing up their demands. 28% more non-contact lower body injuries like Beckham's. 32% more non-contact knee injuries and 69% more non-contact foot and ankle injuries occurred on turf. Turf can get up to 60 degrees hotter than natural grass, increasing the rate at which toxic gases are released and ingested. And there are also environmental issues behind the campaign. Currently, turf can't be recycled in the U.S., leading to an estimated 330 million pounds of landfill waste each year and microplastics in our water and irrigation systems. 
On average, one turf field requires over 440,000 pounds of petroleum derivatives. And lastly, unlike grass, turf does not cool the environment. It does not filter air and water pollutants. It does not fix carbon dioxide or release oxygen. Turf has zero climate benefits. Players are pushing for change. Perhaps Super Bowl 56 will be the breaking point. That was really an astonishing play there when Beckham all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, and for no apparent reason, went right down. Yeah, grabbing his knee. And... uh, yeah, Boy. no contact, no contact, no contact yeah, so injuries. These, this is what's happening. Yeah. And we know about it. I hope that this article will convince some of these, I hate to call them rabid, but these rabid, you know, parents of, of student young, athletes, yeah. you know, that artificial turf is not the answer. It's not the thing that's going to get your kid a, a sports scholarship to college. No, but it may it's be the thing. It's a dangerous surface to play on. Period. It may be the thing that rips your child's ACL. Instead, yeah. there's so many other reasons, but oh, it's boy. amazing that the NFL is actually is actually getting excited about this and saying, "Get this out of here." And we're going to be talking about more of this on today's show. Yes, so. we are. Okay, thanks, Patty. Yep. Dr. Sarah Evans is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at Mount Sinai School of Medicine here in New York, and an expert on chemical toxins and their impact on human health. Patty and I had the pleasure of working with Sarah as part of a team of people who convinced the city of New York to prohibit the use of toxic pesticides on all its parks. Over the past several years, Dr. Evans has been researching the potential impacts of artificial turf fields on public health, especially as they relate to children. Patty and I caught up with her last week, and I asked her how she became involved in this issue. Here's our interview with Dr. Sarah Evans. From my early days at Mount Sinai, and I think I've been there since 2011 now, the team at Mount Sinai had already been getting a lot of inquiries related to um, health impacts of turf. You know, I think things were really taking off at that time in terms of there being many established turf fields around the country and people starting to hear about these potential um, increase in cancers in, in children and young adults who played on these surfaces. So at Mount Sinai, you know, because we have expertise in how the environment impacts development, we got a lot of inquiries from, from communities. And really those have built over the last decade so that barely a week goes by that we don't get contacted by a community who is concerned about um, existing or planned turf fields. The issue has grown in complexity. So we've learned a bit more about, for example, crumb rubber artificial turf, which are some of the first generations of of turf fields that have been installed. But now at a very rapid rate, uh, manufacturers are coming up with different infill types for the fields. We're learning more about the chemical composition. We're learning more about environmental impacts that occur uh, beyond direct human health impacts. So the issue has really only grown and not necessarily resolved, I would say. Mm -hmm. So... Let me just talk about some new things that have come to light about the synthetic turf fields. And this is actually about the plastic 
um, that is used for the blades and for the carpet, the green carpet and, and, and grass blades that contains PFAS. Has that been something that you have been alerted to and have been researching? Yeah, so PFAS um, or per and polyfluoroalkyl substances um, are of concern um, in the grass blades mainly of the, the turf field. And so, you know, one thing that's really important to point out is that we get a lot of questions about what's a safer alternative, um, for example, to the crumb rubber infill. So the, so the crumb rubber is the little ground up um, tires that make up the infill that provide cushioning on, on the turf surface. Um, and so some of the alternatives are made with plastics or non-recycled rubber or even some plant-based materials. But all of the turf fields are using plastic grass blades. And it's the plastic grass blades where we have concerns about these PFAS chemicals. PFAS chemicals are um, contaminating drinking water across the country. There are um, an estimated something like 4,700 different PFAS chemicals in that family of chemicals. They're not very well regulated currently by the EPA and um, several of them have been linked to cancer. So um, it's very difficult to advise a community on choosing a safer turf product when we know that um, a chemical as toxic as PFAS chemicals are in the grass blades. So the EPA actually has um, a strategic plan to more tightly regulate PFAS chemicals in some consumer products to establish enforceable drinking water limits for many of them. And that's very recent as of the last few months. But you know, turf has not necessarily been looked at as a product where we need that kind of regulation. So it's it's kind of um, a conflict where, you know, we acknowledge that PFAS chemicals may be toxic. We're looking to regulate them in many different products and drinking water, and yet we're still okay with putting down, um, you know, a turf of plastic, a, a turf field consisting of plastic grass that's contaminated with PFAS for children to play on. So yes, we're watching that really closely. There, there are also some evidence that um, the PFAS that are present in the turf field can run off and leach into um, water supplies close by. So we have that risk of, of um, environmental contamination as well as human exposure from the turf fields. So what would be the root of exposure for PFAS into young athletes' bodies or children's bodies? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so we think that um, a lot of PFAS exposure happens through ingestion. PFAS are present in food packaging, drinking water, as I mentioned. So that's a definite route of exposure, particularly for small children who, uh, you know, may be rolling around and playing on the fields and may put their hands in their mouths, but also older children who play on the fields and then eat without washing their hands, for example. So there's definitely that potential for, for ingestional exposures. And then, you know, we're less certain about um, skin exposure, but that's a, a definite other possible route of exposure and also through open wounds. So one concern that we have with chemical exposures in general on turf fields is that um, turf burn or these abrasions that people get um, mm -hmm. more when they play on artificial turf compared to when they play on a grass field. Those are open wounds that can then allow the chemicals on the fields to directly enter the bloodstream. So those are probably the two sorts of routes of exposure that we're thinking about would be that unintentional ingestion and then also skin absorption or wound absorption. That's very interesting. That's a point that 
we've talked about as far as, uh, you know, spreading antibiotic resistant bacteria like uh, MRSA and so on, but never as being a really good way to get those chemicals into directly into the bloodstream. Yeah. And one of the, one of the main challenges of, of studying the health effects of playing on turf in general is that we don't have good biomonitoring studies where you look at chemicals that are in the urine or the blood of a player after they've been interacting on the field. Um, mm. That's something that is a part of a current federal turf study that the EPA and the CDC are conducting, but that they have not yet completed that portion of the study or released their findings. We know that like, you know, many of the chemicals that are present in turf are present in the body. So we know that these types of chemicals get into the body. We don't know the exact source and we don't know what, you know, exactly what the levels are following play on the fields. Seems like this is moving slowly at the government level. Are you frustrated uh, for instance, I'm just looking at the New York State Department of Health site, and they really kind of play down, you know, any possible effects that this might have. Kids are playing on this now. They're going ahead and they're playing on it. And yet we've got this science out there that suggests that especially inhalation is a important route of exposure. We know the chemicals volatilize. We know the kids are on these fields on a hot day. When you step out on a synthetic turf field, it smells like you're in a tire store. Uh, there can't be a lot of doubt that this is being inhaled. And yet our government agencies are just not able to, from my perspective, not able to sufficiently warn parents that this is a potential problem. Yeah, I think that's right. And it is really frustrating. And um, we do have a lack of data. So the studies have been very limited, mm -hmm. in part because of uh, the nature of doing them properly and the fact that um, it takes many years often for some of the um, health outcomes or diseases to develop following exposure to these chemicals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so to do it properly, you really need to assess uh, what level of chemicals the individuals are exposed to when they play and then follow them, you know, potentially for years to see what diseases develop. And so, you know, from the, the standpoint of environmental health pediatricians, when we look at the potential exposures that are occurring on these fields um, and some of the limited data related to health outcomes, you know, we think that the lack of evidence supporting safety is enough to say that we should not be playing on these surfaces some of the government agencies, as you mentioned, view it differently and say mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we have limited evidence to say that it's safe so we can continue to play on it. It's, kind of, right. it's sort of the opposite yeah. of what you would expect. But, you know, I will point out that the EPA has released um, three reports so far from the federal turf study, um, which has been going on for, you know, I want to say that it launched something like seven years ago. So it's a long time coming. Yeah. But yeah. some of their major findings are that studies are too limited to confirm that at least crumb rubber artificial turf is safe for children to play on. Um, so the first thing that they did when they conducted the study was to review all of the literature and found that there were huge gaps, um, mm -hmm. yeah. particularly as they pertain to children, as they pertain to playground surfaces. So we're thinking about athletic fields. 
um, you know, is mostly what we're talking about right now, but um, playground surfaces also utilize these right. types of products and the, some of the smallest children are playing on them right. um, who have very different behaviors and different ways of interacting with those materials. And so that's also part of the federal study, but we don't, we don't yet have the, that data. And so instead of putting a pause on utilizing those surfaces in areas where children play, we're allowed to continue while we wait for that data to come. So it's so it's frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's got to be frustrating. I mean, this is this kind of exposure should fall under the the precautionary principle umbrella, right? I mean, we do have some indication of harm, whether it's from the chemical exposure, which is I think what the EPA is mostly looking at, or we have evidence of heat exposure problems. We have evidence of children being harmed because the G-max rating, which is you know the, the hardness of the surface, is very different depending on how the fields are maintained, whether they're properly refilled with material as it you know gets packed down, or whether it gets you know taken off the field on socks and shoes and whatever. So we don't live by the precautionary principle in this country, which says that when there is evidence of harm or even an indication of harm, that we should take precautionary measures. We just go full speed ahead until somebody says stop. Yeah, exactly. And, and I was going to say that, you know, the way that we're dealing with turf as a consumer product is similar to the way that we regulate or don't regulate consumer products um, in this country in general. And we see that with the advent of these new alternatives to crumb rubber infill, right? So, so those products, many companies are saying, this is better, this is safer. If you don't want to use recycled tires on your field, we'll give you this infill instead. And what we know now from some of the studies that are emerging is that those infills, these are you know, third-party studies, academic studies showing that those infills contain many of the same chemicals of concern that recycled tire crumb rubber contains, but mm -hmm. you know, we're permitted to put them out there um, for consumers before we have that evidence. Innocent until proven guilty. Right. And then, you know, and part of this conversation, if they're if you're in the in the loop of the conversation on synthetic turf versus natural grass, is the research that Amy Griffin has done. When I say research, just you know, she she's a um uh she's a soccer coach at a, a university um out in Washington, Washington State, I think. And she's been noticing or she's noticed with her own team at that school that there were a couple of players who had developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So she asked around, you know, to other soccer coaches and said, you know, are you seeing this, you know, among your players? And they said, yeah. And so there was, you know, this interest in whether or not this may be related to the surface that they were playing on, especially soccer goalies who, you know, dive onto the surface a lot uh, and kick up the dust and breathe in that dust and so on. So, you know, she's got a database of, you know, over 160, I think, players that have developed these cancers. And what do you do with that? I mean, that's not scientific. That's nothing, but it's, uh, but it's interesting, right? Yeah, and I think it's actually um, higher than that. I think as of even two years ago, it was over 260 players uh -huh. with different, different types of cancers, different types of athletes, not just soccer players, although I right. think um, the right. largest pool in there were soccer goalies. Right. Um, and so, 
Yeah, it's really tricky. So the so Washington State um, Department of Health did an investigation to see whether they could identify a cancer cluster just amongst, I believe, soccer players just in Washington State. Mm-hmm. Um, so not the entire uh, pool that was identified. And they, you know, their conclusion was that they could not identify a cancer cluster. They could not conclude that this comprised a cancer cluster where they saw, you know, a higher rate of cancers than expected for that population. But they did conclude that they can't rule out that the turf does not contribute to cancer risk, right? And so that's sort of the conclusion that all agencies have made um, is that, yes, these materials contain carcinogens. We know that. And it's possible that they could contribute to disease risk, but we don't know. We don't have enough enough data. So again, going back to the precautionary principle, um, why would you have children play on a a field that contains known carcinogens when when you can't even conclude that that's safe. Yeah, but we're not talking about neutral substances here. We're not talking about something that that we're speculating might be harmful. We know that the chemicals that are involved in making tires are highly toxic. Those those studies we have. The study we don't have is is making that link necessarily between a soccer player who's continually diving into pieces of crumb rubber and breathing in the dust and sickness. But should we wait until we can count the bodies? I mean, is that what it's going to take? How many young girls uh, or young men are going to be subjected to this before I'm editorializing here. Hey, you know, you are editorializing. I mean, my problem is that these kids start playing on these fields at really young ages. Yeah, they're four years old. And as you said, Sarah, I mean, young children, they uh, participate in their world in a very different way. They have this hand to mouth behavior. They roll around, you know, on the grass. And I mean, I remember going to an early soccer, not a match, but a a practice and, and watching a sibling of one of the soccer players who was with her mother um, watching, you know, her sister play. And she was pretending she was a cow and she was just eating at licking and eating the grass. Mm. Of course, it was real grass. I'm, I, this was not on a, on a synthetic turf field, but but that's what little children do. They you know, they have a different way of, of operating in, in the world. They are. This is how they learn about their world. They touch it. They taste it. They smell it. They eat it, whatever. So just because they are doing what they're supposed to do, they are disproportionately exposed and disproportionately affected. And so how do we how do we do this? Right. And that's right. And, you know, and, and to build on on that, just as sort of evidence of, of how children are differently exposed to chemicals, we know from um, studies that the CDC conducts every other year on a representative population of the United States, um, which they um, look at exposures in children down to as young as three years of age. Um, They find for many, many chemicals that we're concerned about that interfere with hormones, um, that are linked to cancer, that are neurotoxic, many of those chemicals are actually present at higher rates in the bodies of the youngest kids. So we know that, you know, in part because of their behavior and in part because of their normal physiology, they do have higher exposure to many chemicals. um, And you can just see as you 
outlined from the types of behaviors that they do when they're outside, um, you know, crawling around on the ground or on the playground, how much higher their potential exposures would be. Um, you know, and the other thing that's important to point out is that um, children breathe at a higher rate than adults, so they get more inhalational exposures, and they also are not as good at regulating their body temperature. So when we think about the heat exposures, which you touched on before, which are very, very real on these types of fields, um, kids are going to be more susceptible to heat injuries as well. So across the board, the youngest children are vulnerable. And then the other thing that I would say that that's of great concern to us is that Many communities are not installing a field just for professional athletes or varsity athletes. They're putting in a field that's going to be used for elementary school recess, middle school recess, maybe all of the community activities. In some cases, maybe it's the, the main outdoor area that a community has or a neighborhood has for play. Um, and so you're going to get um, not just varsity level sports played there, but you're going to get maybe picnicking, lounging, cartwheeling, somersaulting, um, you know, and that's not really what these surfaces should be used for if they're going to be used at all. That's true. And, and yet it's the, you know, it's usually the parents of high school athletes who are really behind the installation of these fields. We see that over and over again, and I'm sure you do too, that they want their kids to be playing on quote unquote professional fields so that they can, you know, maybe get that that scholarship, that sports scholarship to college. And then, you know, the kids have already had experience and they're used to those fields. And it's just giving them an advantage, they think, over some some other school district that doesn't have a, a synthetic turf field. But we have to get beyond that. I mean, we keep saying, you know, some of the some of the professional sports teams are saying, give us our grass back. Right. I mean, the injuries are so are so bad and they take much longer to heal. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because we don't have a lot of information about that. But I think that there is data on that. Is there not? Yeah. So actually, the the U.S. women's professional soccer team ultimately won a lawsuit. So they pressed for many years because of exactly what you're talking about. So so there is there is some data to support an increase in um, like ACL injuries on artificial turf compared to natural grass because you know they think it's because of the way that um, the cleats or the sneakers get sort of stuck or grip to the to the turf field and then can twist the knee. So mm -hmm. um, so those types of injuries appear to be more common. Certainly turf burn that I already referred to, those those awful abrasions um, that you get from from rubbing your skin against the field when you fall. So the US men's soccer team was playing on natural grass, but the US women's soccer team was required to play on artificial mm -hmm. turf and they mm -hmm. hated it. Mm -hmm. And they pushed and pushed and pushed and ultimately had to sue to win the right to be permitted to play on natural grass. Um, just that in itself, incredible. when you just think about it, it's like outrageous. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I definitely I agree with you that a lot of the push is coming from parents of athletes and coaches. I experienced that in my own community. I'm also a parent, so I can relate to that to some degree. I think part of the challenge is really showing people that um, natural grass, you can maintain 
a natural grass field that's appropriate for high level play. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of it is keeping up with the Joneses, the next town. Uh, you know, we go to we go to play at the next town and they have this high tech artificial turf field. How come we don't have that too? But but a lot of a lot of it has to do with like planting the right grass for, and I'm not an expert on this, but yeah, I, um, you know, well, this is where we come in. It. Right. And you know that the guy that is going to do the training for the New York City Parks is also an expert in athletic turf. And this is what Chip Osborne does. Yeah. I mean, he goes all over the country doing grass athletic fields. Yeah. And there are a couple of great um, examples of success stories, I think, um, on Martha's Vineyard and in Springfield, yeah. Massachusetts. And um the Toxic Use Reduction Institute, um, which is a really fabulous institute in Massachusetts, yeah. um, you know, and I would encourage people to check out the resources that they have. They have worked with some of those communities. They've also done the work, um, which shows some of the work showing um, that there are harmful chemicals present in, in all of the alternative infills, essentially. Um, but they ha also have some resources and information about communities that have successfully um, been able to maintain well-drained, properly grass fields. Grass yep. Fields. Yep. So, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of convincing people, showing people examples of where that's been possible. The, the other problem, you know, I, I hear a couple of things. One is about drought, you know, in the Southwest and in California, how can we maintain grass in, in drought? And then the other one, you know, and again, I think the answer is a lot of the things that you already said and, and that there are drought resistant grasses. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is about wet weather. Um, and how do we handle that? And, you know, one, one part of that is proper drainage. Um, but another part is, um, is or another thing I think communities need to be aware of is that flooding is not great on an artificial turf field either. And there are many stories of the infill floating up and washing away. And so while a lot of communities say, well, we lose, we lose days due to wet weather on grass fields, then I would also point out you lose days due to hot weather on artificial turf fields. And Patty, you brought that up also earlier, and I want to circle back to the heat issue. So the, the highest temperature that's been measured on an artificial turf field is 200 degrees. And that seems insane, 200 degrees Fahrenheit. And I think that was on like a 98 degree day, but on a you know fairly average 80 degree day, you can get temperatures on turf fields that are 40 to 70 degrees hotter than the air temperature and hotter than natural grass. So every type of artificial turf that has been tested on a warm, sunny day gets hotter than a natural grass field does. And so, you know, actually children should not be playing, athletes should not be playing on those fields on days that get much higher than, than 80 degrees. And anyone who has a turf field should be measuring the surface temperature and the air temperature above the field before they let the kids play on them. And how often is that done? I mean, in, in practical terms, they're not walking around with a, you know, with a thermometer you know, measuring, measuring that. And then what about, what about those, those high degree days that we had even in the Northwest last summer, where yeah. it was like 113 sure. degrees. What is it, right. what is an, an artificial turf, you know, surface going to be when you have 113 degrees air temperature? Yeah. And they absolutely reach, uh, you know, temperatures that can, can give second degree burns. And that's been seen. Um, and it's not just the surface of the field, but it's the um, temperature at head height, the air temperature at head height is also elevated um, mm -hmm. 
above the, the ambient air temperature. Um, so that's really serious. There, and um, the, there are a lot of heat stroke and heat illness in student athletes. And then it's not just athletes, but think about marching bands who mm-hmm. train, mm-hmm. who are out there all summer um, on a field in a, sometimes a wool costume. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we remember those costumes, right, yeah, Doug? We do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a lot of a lot of considerations that that need to be made in terms of safety. I want to go back. You said that you studied neuroscience. One of the things that has always kind of puzzled me is we know that a lot of the toxic chemicals in the manufacture of tires are actually neurotoxins. And I wonder if there have been any study on the possible impact of inhaling these these toxins on brain function. Has anybody looked at that? And if not, why not? I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at that as it relates to play on the turf fields, but certainly a large number of the chemicals that we know are present, like heavy metals, like lead and cadmium, the VOCs that can be emitted, particularly when temperatures rise. Many of those chemicals, we have a a large number of studies that have shown impacts on um, cognition and on behavior. And of course, you know, the people who are most susceptible to that are young children. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Although I will say, I wouldn't overlook um, teens and adolescents as being vulnerable as well, because we have to remember that the brain, the nervous system, and also the reproductive system are continually developing into the 20s. So we think, yes, small children are very vulnerable to a lot of these exposures, but that doesn't really preclude the vulnerability of older children and young adults, particularly when we're talking about impacts on brain development. And those impacts are, are lifelong. I would think that parents, even parents, you know, who are rah, rah, we support the football team. Let's get the, the synthetic turf field in here might think twice if they knew that it might have an impact on their child's brain development. Yeah. And I don't think that people are thinking that way. And I also think that often it's not appreciated that low level exposures to a lot of the chemicals that we're concerned about can have an impact, right? So there's really mm-hmm. no safe level of lead exposure. That's yeah. that's essentially what we've, you know, everyone is exposed to a little bit of lead, but there's no safe level of lead. There's no level um, of lead that you can be exposed to that's that's not going to have an impact on brain development and, and cognition and behavior. So I think appreciating what we've learned more and more over the years about low levels of exposure and also cumulative exposures. So a turf fields with its mixture of chemicals that you can be exposed to simultaneously is not even the only thing that someone's exposed to throughout the day, right? So exposed to the chemicals through food packaging and foods and um, the air you breathe. And so while someone might think, well, it's just a little bit of lead or it's just a little bit of phthalates or a little bit of PFAS, it's not gonna have an impact. We actually know that very low doses of chemicals can have an impact on health and that they can act in an additive or a synergistic manner with everything else that we're exposed to throughout our environment to impact health. Well, so you know what, if you're, if you're thinking about tiny little exposures, I think about all of the crumb rubber particles that have, have seen a former life on the roadways, right? Picking up diesel exhaust fumes and, you know, picking up all kinds of things off the roads, lead from the, the paint and all kinds of stuff. So you have all 
probably, you know, tiny little microscopic pieces of all these other contaminants on those used tires. And, you know, I know diesel exhaust is, is another one of those things where there is no safe level of exposure, no safe level of exposure to diesel exhaust. So, okay. It gets complicated, doesn't it? It gets yeah, really complicated. Yeah, an added complication in understanding the health impacts of, particularly when we're thinking about um, recycled tire rubber, is partly what you just said, that it's a really heterogeneous product. So one, the tires that go into one turf field may not be exactly the same as the tires that go into another turf field because they have different composition exactly. and because they have picked up you know, other things off of the roadways and, and through the environment. So, so that makes it an even uh, bigger challenge, I think, when thinking about what the exposures might be. So since we have you here and you're the expert on this, so I have one other question, and that is all the body fluid spills that you find on, on, on all athletic fields, not just synthetic turf fields, but, you know, from blood and, and, you know, spit and vomit, and it goes on and on, sweat and so on. We always say that a, a natural grass field, you know, is safer because the, the you know, the microbiome of the, of the soil, the microbiome of the soil, you know, has you know, has these things in it that will, that will break down these, um, these pathogens. How, how do you, how do you talk about that when you're talking about synthetic turf fields of body fluid spills? Yeah. Well, w one of the, the things that I think not everyone realizes, and sometimes there's an argument in favor of artificial turf that says, well, we don't need to apply pesticides. So now we don't right. we mm -hmm. want to Right. Pesticides. But um, to deal with exactly what you're talking about in terms of bodily fluids and, and bacteria and, um, you know, sometimes there are concerns about mold growth, um, proper maintenance of these fields often involves the use of disinfectant chemicals or pesticides, ironically. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it's really important for communities who are considering these types of fields to think about those additional exposures um, and, and maintenance costs as well that aren't always presented or obvious up front. Um, so it's just another right. way, you know, to properly maintain them, you really need to use some some chemicals that themselves may also cause harm. That's right. And so, you know, so the 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 manufacturers of these turf fields, the industry, they they just gloss over that. It's really just you don't have to mow so that it's uh, environmentally, you know, it's it's more advantageous because you're not, you know, burning fossil fuels to, you know, to uh, to power your mowers and whatever. Um, and then you don't have to use pesticides, uh, you don't have to use fertilizers, um, but in fact, you do need to use um, pesticide products in order to properly disinfect the fields, but, I, but I, I've never really seen anybody ever do that. Right, and, and so the proper maintenance of these fields um, is often questionable. Um, in addition to you know, keeping them clean, um, and applying chemicals, you're really supposed to make sure that the infill is properly distributed, um, that it's not too compacted, that you replenish it um, when, when needed, that you test the hardness to um, prevent concussion. So, so all artificial turf fields by nature are harder than natural grass. And so, uh, you know, part of what the infill does is to um, reduce some of that hardness and reduce um, head injuries and concussions. 
but you know, in order to be sure that it's safe, you need to test the hardness and you need to make sure that the infill is properly distributed. So that involves you know, raking it or maintaining it and replenishing the infill, um, usually at an added cost and obviously added labor. Um, and so that tends to be something that communities are unaware of when they go into yeah. the right. And it, it's totally overlooked. I, I mean, I mean, just I'm just talking about, you know, practically real real life, right, or real world situations where none of those things get done. I mean, yeah. basically, they, they think that you put down a field and that's it. Maintenance free, done all year play, all weather play, you know, no maintenance. And that's that's how they treat them. Sarah, was yeah. there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention? Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we focus a lot on the um, direct health impacts of playing on the fields and being exposed to the heat and the chemicals. Um, and I think we also need to be thinking about maybe the less direct health impacts that are occurring through exacerbation of climate change. So, um, you know, these fields require a lot of petroleum to make, you know, they're made out of plastic and rubber. Um, and so throughout their life cycle, um, from manufacture all the way through to disposal, they're actually contributing to climate change. So um, they create heat islands. Um, so mm -hmm. they're like I said, much hotter than a natural grass field. Um, and then when they when you try to dispose of them, which again is a, often an added cost that communities don't concern or that, that don't consider. Um, so maybe eight to ten years after that field is installed, the thing needs to get ripped up and disposed of. It's reached its end of life. Um, does it go into a landfill? And then um, you know as it degrades, it's emitting greenhouse gases, right? So um, so I think it's really important to recognize um, the environmental cost and the contribution to climate change that these products are having, which then we know has a whole host of indirect health effects, um, you know, increasing heat, increasing extreme weather, um, the injuries and, and losses that are associated with that, um, increased allergies, asthma exacerbation, uh, insect-borne disease, you know, so, um, so I just think it's important to keep that that context as well when making a decision about whether to install a field. You've been listening to Green Street, and our guest today has been Dr. Sarah Evans, Assistant Professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Right now, it's time for the Green Street Info Bits. These are items we pull from our files on a whole variety of issues we've covered here on Green Street and also in our work at Grassroots. From the Green Body Department, this is called, Is That a Chemical You're Wearing? Percoroethylene, or PERC, the chemical used in most traditional dry cleaning establishments, has been linked to serious human health problems, including liver and kidney damage, as well as water contamination. Most exposure to PERC comes through inhalation, so if you can smell it, you're being exposed. If you have your clothes dry cleaned, be sure to take them out of the plastic bag and hang them outside to air before putting them in your closet. Better yet, look for one of the growing list of commercial cleaners who use non-perk methods to clean your clothes. And remember, many garments that are marked dry clean only can actually be hand or machine washed if you're careful. Now from the Green Living Department, Safe Pet Food. 
The recent pet food contamination scare has raised public awareness about what's really in the food we give to our four-legged friends. One of the most common ingredients found in many non-organic pet foods is poultry meat that's derived from the ground, necks, feet, and intestines of chickens. And think about this. Many chickens deemed not fit for human consumption are sold by farmers to pet food companies. Recently, many pet owners have taken another look at organic pet food, which it turns out is not as expensive or as difficult to find as you might think. So do yourself and your pet a favor. Check out your local pet store for organic food choices. Your pet will love you for it. From the Green Books Department, Living Downstream. What role does the environment play in the cancer epidemic? Author Sandra Steingraber brings her experience as a biologist, poet, and cancer survivor to bear on one of the most important health issues of our time, the growing body of scientific evidence linking environmental contamination with increased rates of cancer. Using right-to-know laws and newly released cancer registry data, Dr. Steingraber weaves a compelling narrative which blends scientific observation with a deeply personal perspective, dispelling old myths and building a strong case for immediate action. Sandra likes to tell the story about growing up with her family, many of whom contracted the same types of cancer when they lived downstream from a chemical plant. It seemed like cancer was running in her family, but Sandra was adopted. If you haven't already read it, please pick up a copy of Living Downstream, one of the best environmental books we've ever read, available at your local bookstore. From the Green Home Department, Paints and stains. Although lead has been banned for use in paints and stains for years, other chemicals used in the manufacture of these products have also been linked with significant health and environmental issues. Most paints and stains contain volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, and other toxic additives that create toxic fumes that can linger indoors for long periods of time. Some VOCs contribute to ozone depletion, while others have known health risks. The good news is that low VOC or no VOC paints and stains are becoming more widely available to consumers. Most of the major paint manufacturers have a line of environmentally friendly products and they're available at most hardware and home improvement stores. We just recently had some painting done in our house. Couldn't smell a thing. If you have to use products containing hazardous chemicals, do so only in well-ventilated areas and avoid prolonged exposure, especially for children. Don't allow them to sleep in or play in newly painted rooms until all the smell has dissipated. And finally, from the Green Living Department, dealing with ants... For many homeowners, the return of spring is announced not only by daffodils and forsythia, but also by an invasion of ants. But before reaching for a pesticide, which may be more harmful to you and your family than the ants will ever be, consider the better ecological solution, boric acid. This low-toxicity mineral has far fewer health concerns than synthetic pesticides. Care should be used to keep boric acid away from children and pets and avoid breathing the dust. Following product guidelines, carefully sprinkle the boric acid into cracks and crevices, behind counters, inside kitchen cabinets, and around baseboards. Wandering ants pick up the white powder on their legs, carry it back to the nest where they ingest it while grooming each other. Boric acid is available at most drug and hardware stores. Great advice to avoid pesticides in your home or apartment. That's InfoBits for this week from Green Street Radio.
You've been listening to Green Street, the Environmental Health Show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today was Dr. Sarah Evans, Assistant Professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. If you missed any part of the program today, you can always listen again at GreenStreetRadio.com, where you can also sign up for program alerts and send us your comments on the show. We love to hear from you. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.